All right. Let's take our Bibles and open them to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We're going to take our time this morning to study the portion of Scripture that unfolds to us the unveiling of the glory of Jesus Christ. I want to begin by reading this for us, beginning in verse 27 of chapter 9 and reading all the way down to verse 36. Jesus, of course, speaking with the disciples, said, I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. While he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who were appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. and They were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Rather remarkable that throughout the study of the Gospel of Luke, as we have continued through it, we have been really in many ways front row spectators to a whole host of miracles that Jesus Christ has accomplished. And in those miracles, we have seen the divine grace and mercy of God on display. Jesus has displayed that divine grace and mercy by curing many who were sick and ill with infirmities in the physical realm. He has been the dispenser of the mercy of God's grace to those possessed by the agents in the demonic realm, those who were overtaken and controlled by demons. He's even shown the mercy of God by raising the dead, causing those around who saw that to wonder at who he was. In all of those accounts, he has been proven who he is by what he has done. All of those things were affirmative realities to verify the veracity and reality of his divineness. And now here in Luke chapter 9, he is again revealing who he is. Not by some divine grace for the masses to see, but rather through the manifestation of His perfection, 
by unveiling his divine glory to just a few disciples. It's interesting as you read through the Old Testament, the prophets of old prophesied that when the Messiah would come, that he would proclaim good news to the spiritually poor, that he would bring release to the spiritual captives, that he would cause the spiritual blind to see and the spiritually lame to walk. And of course, those realities we have been seeing unfold because they were accompanied by the physical confirmations that what he said about himself was true. And that is exactly what he was doing through his ministry. And yet many, sadly, remained blind to who he was. Some said that he was just another prophet. When Jesus asked the question in verse 18, who do the people say that I am? The answers were, were just those. He's just another prophet. He's just another, another good man telling of the good things of God that would come, but he's not the deliverer of Israel. That was what their minds were telling them. Others were saying that he was Elijah come back to life, that he was the great prophet of old that stood against the false prophets in the day in which he lived. As Elijah had called the prophets of Baal to the Mount Carmel so that he could confront them all, and God, of course, consumes them on that day. Still others said that he was John the Baptist. Or at least he came in the same spirit of John the Baptist and that he had the same message of John the Baptist. And yet, thankfully, those who were his closest disciples answered correctly. But who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter being the spokesman for the rest, he was always the one that spoke up. He was the one that God had given this divine, I guess, responsibility, because you always see him speaking up, and the others are agreeing with what he's saying, Peter answers and said, you are the Christ of God. They said, he's the Christ. They said, he is the anointed one of God who, who would save his people from their sins. And yet, even with that answer, as we have been looking at over the last few weeks, you can get it wrong. You can say the words, and if your life isn't right, then the words mean nothing. And for the apostles, while they said those words, they didn't yet grasp that the kingdom wasn't going to be established as they wanted. In fact, the kingdom of God was in essence personified in Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus even says this in verse 27. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Well, of course, in the passage that we're spending our time in this morning, we see that that is personified in Jesus Christ. In other words, without Jesus Christ, there is no kingdom. There is no kingdom with God if it isn't through Jesus Christ. You cannot have a relationship with God. You cannot say, I, 
I'm good with God. God is good with me. We have a life together. I believe in God and yet be absent of Jesus Christ. You cannot have a relationship with the true and living God unless it is through God in the flesh, who is Jesus Christ. But without him, there is no kingdom. Jesus wasn't going to be the political ruler. He wasn't going to bring some kind of social rule that they desired. He came to follow the plan of the Father and to follow it just as God the Father and the Godhead had determined before the world ever was. Therefore, he had to suffer. He had to be rejected by the religious establishment of the day who said they knew God and yet didn't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. He had to be murdered so that he might rise from the dead. Jesus Christ lived that life that he was calling all of those who would identify with him to live. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. You cannot have a life with God without following after Jesus Christ and what he calls for you in this life. The true believer is just that. They are Christ followers. Christ followers. Therefore, we are to live by the plan of God. And that plan sometimes includes suffering, certainly rejection for all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul said. But even death, if God should ordain it so, but in the end, we have the hope of glory. We have the hope that all who truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ will be raised unto eternal life with Him. I find it to be an intriguing reality when the Bible tells us in John chapter 4 that God is spirit. God is spirit. That simply means that God has no visible form, and yet God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. He's the Spirit. And when God chose by His grace and mercy to reveal Himself, even in the Old Testament, He revealed Himself most often as blazing light. Blazing light. That is simply to say that God is absolute purity in His being and in His essence. In fact, if we were to go back to the Old Testament, I'll just relay this to us. We don't have to go there, but in Exodus chapter 33, Moses asks God to reveal Himself. Show me Yourself as God is commanding Moses to go and tell the people that he is the one who's going to lead them. And Moses says, who am I going to tell them who you are? Show me who you are. Show me your glory, Moses says in Exodus 33. In other words, reveal yourself to me. And God, out of his mercy and grace, does so. Moses sees God's glow. 
He sees the light of God's bright glory, his Shekinah glory is the Hebrew word, the Shekinah of God, the, the bright glory of God and its brightness transforms Moses' face. When God led Israel through the desert, it was by light that they were led. A pillar of fire by day, or a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. We see the same, the same motive coming forward as you look into the New Testament. In 1 John chapter 5, John, who was one of them on the mountain with Jesus Christ, says, and this is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, 1 John 1 verse 5, that God is light. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. There you have the reality of the essence of God and the reality of the purity of God. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. And so, as we read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, we find God revealing Himself in the same way on the Mount of Olives in Jesus Christ as blazing light. That light is only veiled by the humanity of Jesus Christ in its human flesh. In other words, Jesus Christ is, beloved, the Shekinah glory of God. Jesus Christ is the blazing, glistening purity that is God. In fact, in fact, just as a a little side note for us, this event right here is why the Apostle John says in John chapter 1 and verse 14, we beheld His glory. What kind of glory was that, John? It was the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw the glory of God just as Moses saw the glory of God. We saw the bright, pure holiness of God who is light. That which only could be true of God, John says, we saw in Jesus Christ full of grace and truth. When did you see that, John? When I was on the mountain with Peter and James. This had a profound effect upon these men. We hear Peter resonating about this same truth in the second letter that Peter writes, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I find that interesting. We, we didn't follow the things that, that people talk about, these clever stories, these Aesop's fables, if you will, these stories about people and things. We didn't make this stuff up when we talked about Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. When, when He received honor and glory from God the Father... Such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So God chooses primarily then to reveal himself as blinding light. In fact, turn over for a moment to Revelation chapter 1. Revelations chapter 1. We find this same truth here. John, of course, on the island of Patmos is a, an exile because of the truth of Jesus Christ. It says that in verse 9, I'm there on this island in exile because of the testimony, because of the Word of God, the testimony of Jesus. In other words, I've been doing exactly what God has commissioned me to do, called me to do. I've been preaching about Jesus Christ and the reality of who He is, that He is God. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, verse 10, I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying to me, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. In verse 12 he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I was a little kid, I used to play that foolish game that kids sometimes do, and we'd look at the sun, try to see if we could look at the sun. You couldn't look but a nanosecond, and your eyes were, the retina in the back of your eyeball was starting to be painful. Jesus Christ's face is shining like the sun shining in its strength. The blazing, blinding light of the sun. The face of Jesus Christ. Over to Revelation chapter 21. Verse Getting in verse 10, getting a glimpse of the new heaven and the new earth, this new holy city, Jerusalem, coming down into heaven from God, having the glory of God. This is the description of the city in which we dwell for all eternity with God Himself, and it has the glory of God. And therefore, her brilliance is like the very costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. Of course, he goes on to describe its dimensions and the gates, the foundation stones, the city. You get down into verse 21, the 
12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I've seen a lot of gold in my day, 24 karat gold that they say is the purest gold, and yet none of it was translucent. And yet this is gold in such a fashion that's so pure and so clear that you can see through it. And notice verse 22, I saw no temple in it. Why? Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And verse 23, the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God has illumined it. Its lamp is the Lamb. The shining brightness of God, the glory of God will be the very light by which we exist in all of eternity. The purity and resilient beauty and majestic glory of God will be before us all the time. The nations will walk by its light, it says. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no light there. Its gates will never be closed. and They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. What a glorious scene that is. So when Jesus was here on earth, He was the light of God. Why? Because He is God. He wasn't simply a mirror reflecting God. He is God, and in Him is the light of the glory of God. In heaven, the glory of God is unveiled, and it will be the light of all the heavens. And so when Jesus desired to show His eternal glory to these disciples... We have it recorded for us here. He he pulls back the covering of His humanity and reveals Himself as the blinding light of the glory of God. That's what we're seeing in this text before us. Sometimes we, we take Jesus Christ too easily. Sometimes we look at Him too simply with eyes too human. And while He is fully human, He is yet fully God, and we must see Him as He is. And this, beloved, is a glimpse at the glory of God. And while all of us who have been studying through this together have answered that final test question, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, the Christ of God. This is God's answer to that final test question. Who is Jesus Christ? He is God in the flesh. I I believe there there was a twofold purpose for this to take place. One purpose has to do with the humanity of Jesus Christ. The other has to do with the disciples. Specifically here, Peter, James, and John but also through them, of course, all who are disciples of Jesus Christ, meaning you and I as well. This morning, I just want to cover the first. I just want to cover 
the implications and purpose that have to do with the humanity of Jesus Christ. And then we'll come back again next time to look at the purpose for the disciples. Let's look first then at this purpose for the humanity of Jesus Christ. You notice that the text says to us, verse 28, some eight days after these sayings. Some of you may be scratching your head as you read those words because you've read Matthew's account and you've read Mark's account and you notice in both of those accounts, each one of them make a point to give a time marker that says six days after this. Each one of them, Matthew and Mark, are giving the exact time that this took place. They both say six days later. That's the exact time. But Luke is giving the general reference some eight days after these things. Each of them are making a point, and the point simply is to give not just the exact time, but to give the time that it took roughly a week, a week, roughly a week later. Luke says after eight days, he's giving the general timing while Matthew and Mark give the precise timing. Don't ever let someone say, well, see, the Bible contradicts itself in Matthew and Mark when it comes to Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Say, no, no, you just don't understand what you're looking at. Well, that is simply to say that the event took place about a week after Jesus plainly told the disciples that his end on earth would come not upon a throne, but rather it would come upon a cross. Remember, they they recoiled at that thought. They said, no, no, Master, you're not doing that. You're not going to die a death as a criminal on a cross. And so Jesus, in these moments, does what all of us ought to do in those times of challenge and in those times of difficulty. Jesus prays. And I believe not only was he praying in his own heart before the Father for what was to come, but I think he's also praying for them. Because remember what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? We were studying through John's Gospel as we studied through Mark's Gospel some years ago, agonizing over the thought of going to Calvary. In fact, it says in the gospel, particularly Matthew 26, it says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was not saying, listen, I'm in my humanity. I I just don't ever want to go through this. It was certainly a struggle. Humanly speaking, Jesus was fully human, yet fully God. And he was saying, I will do the will of you no matter what the cost. And so here are the disciples for the six days leading up to this point. The mood among these men would have been a somber mood, knowing what Jesus had said. The despair of the disciples, the intimate knowledge that they had of what was to come as Jesus had told them, Knowing what was going to take place, all of this, I believe, would have fed to a mood that week that led to this very point. And while we 
We're going to see next time that the primary purpose of the transfiguration was to encourage and embolden the disciples whose faith was, was nearly crushed by the announcement of his death was also meant to show the resoluteness of Jesus Christ to fulfill the will of the Father. To understand this further, notice that Jesus went to the mountain, it says, to pray. Some eight days later, after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Jesus took the three closest disciples. The same way we see him again in the Garden of Gethsemane and the night before his death. And he takes them here in order to encourage them and to plead for them. So that when the, the final death blow comes upon Jesus Christ, their faith would not fail. Jesus told Peter, Peter, listen, Satan desires to sift you, but I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. When you return, encourage your brethren. The Bible tells us that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, even now as intercessor for those who believe. While Satan is constantly accusing, Jesus is there. Jesus is interceding for each and every one of us who are His. Doesn't that make you just take a big sigh of relief? Attacks come, attacks go, difficulties arise, trouble, life is hard, and Jesus is praying for you. <laughs> I can't think of anyone else I'd rather have praying for me than God Himself. He's before the Father so that our faith will not fail. And we know we're secure in His hands because He's promised that all of those whom the Father has given Him, He will lose none. And so here's Jesus going to pray. But not just for them. I believe also Jesus He's praying in His humanity that He too would be strengthened to face and to bear the cross. Back further in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, Jesus in the garden will pray this, Father, if You are willing, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, Yours be done. So here is Jesus agonizing with the Father. And so I believed he prayed for strength to drink the full cup of what was to come. I don't think that's strange for us to understand in the humanity of Jesus Christ. We're not saying that Jesus Christ was a sinner in any kind of way. He was like us in every way, yet without sin, it tells us in the Scriptures. But I do believe that Jesus was agonizing over what is to come. and He's agonizing before the Father just like he will on the night before his death. And so I, play, I, pray, I believe he prayed for strength to drink the full cup of what is to come 
and thanking the Father for what was to come. You say, what was that? What was to come? Well, notice verse 51. Verse 51 says this, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. That was to come. His ascension was to come. Sure, the cross was to come. Sure, the suffering at the hands of wicked men, that was to come. Sure, his death, and yet the resurrection from the dead, all of that had to happen. All of that was a must, but it was the return to glory that drove him. It was the return to the glory that he once had before he came and took on humanity. His return to glory meant full and complete accomplishment of the redemptive plan that was set forth in eternity past. And so Jesus prays. In fact, we see in John chapter 17 in Jesus' prayer that we know is the high priestly prayer. He prays and thanks God that he will be returning to the glory that he had before. So Jesus prays, and the answer to his prayer came through this transfiguration. Notice verse 29, And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing white and gleaming. You notice this miracle of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ happened while he was praying. That blinding glory of God, the present company of Moses and Elijah in the glory of their eternal beings, the voice from heaven, all of this was part of the answer to the prayer of Jesus. Thinking about Isaiah 40, verse 29 through 31, where he says this, He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Jesus certainly knew those words. Jesus waited upon the Father and He received the answer from the Father. And that would encourage the faith of these men who were with Him. And it would set Him resolutely on His final leg back to glory. Every time we see Jesus pray, it ought to encourage us to pray more. <laughs> if God incarnate... <laughs> found it necessary to pray, should not we? It ought to cause us to pray without ceasing as we are commanded to pray. Luke 9 says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. In fact, one of the gospel writers says his white became whiter than any kind of detergent could produce. I like that. I mean, God gets so specific to talk to us in such mundane terms so that we understand what white he's talking about. 
Jesus was changed while in communion with the Father. That's the point. Jesus is praying, and while He is praying, He is changed while in communion with the Father. And I don't believe that it is wrong for us to draw the implication that the same thing happens to us in a spiritual way. Oh, we're not God. We are not going to peel back our flesh and some kind of glory be revealed in us, but we are with God. We can rightly say that there is nothing for transforming our character more than communion with God the Father. It's great to be around one another, and we ought to be around one another. We are commanded, in fact, to be around one another. Anytime we remove ourselves from that, we are removing ourselves from the grace of God in our lives through His hand working through others in us. And yet, there is nothing more transforming to our very spiritual character than spending time communing with God the Father, whether that be in prayer or whether that be in prayer while studying the Word of God or prayer in any other time of our life as we pray without ceasing. Beloved, our communion with God dispels fears that can debilitate us. Communion with God calms the anxious heart. Be anxious for nothing but through prayer and supplication make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, nobody gets it, you don't even understand it, but you know that when you commune with God, you come out whereby you went with an anxious heart, you come away with a calm heart before God. Communion with God soothes the sorrows of our heart. In fact, I would even say communion with God conforms and fashions in us the countenance of Christ. We come away saying, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, communing with God leaves its mark on our character. I read a sentence this week that really kind of just had an impact on my mind. It said it this way, prayer causes the look of care to relax into peace and the lines of anguish to change into joy. I like that. It's through prayer that God gives us the grace to bear the burdens of this temporal life. The rejection, the disowning of Jesus Christ, even by the disciples, even if it was momentary for the protection of their own necks. The rejection of the Jewish leadership upon Jesus Christ, all of these things, even His death on the cross, was all a temporal thing. We know with Jesus that God the Father didn't remove from Him any of those things. He didn't remove the cross. He didn't remove that from the path to return to glory. But we can certainly see that after the event, He resolutely set His mind to go to Jerusalem. That's what verse 51 tells us. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. So communion with the Father was a humanly encouragement. 
to Jesus as it ought to be to us. You say, how, how was it an encouragement to Jesus? In other words, what, what in it, what took place that encouraged Jesus? I think sometimes it's strange for us to think of Jesus in that way, that Jesus was encouraged, but he was fully human, yet without sin. And so I believe communing with the Father was uplifting to him humanly. He certainly wept. We know he had a sadness of spirit. And this must have lifted him up. How? Well, first of all, his glory was revealed. Not only did they see it, but Jesus was there. Verse 29 says, his appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. Mark's gospel says it this way. He was transfigured. Not a term we hear much in our day. The term transfigured in the original language may be, we may hear more of. It's metamorpho, where we get our word metamorphosis. In other words, he was totally changed. He was totally changed. And the word has to do with his body and form. In other words, he was transformed into something that was totally different. His body and his form was totally changed. He was transfigured. You say, well, explain that to me. I can't. I can't. Why? Because that's all we have. That's it. This is all we know of this moment. We don't know or have any other explanation for it other than that. It's a supernatural miracle. How it happened? He was transformed. It was the glory of God. Verse 29, his face and his clothing became different. In what way? In like the same way it will be in the glories of heaven, Matthew says his faith, face shone like the sun. <laughs> the wording there is the same kind of wording in Revelation. It's the sun at its brightest moment. So this was the glory of God inherent in Christ that is being revealed, unveiled. So this Jesus whom they had seen walking around every day with human form and characteristics was none other than the God of all glory. I often chuckle to myself that Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. I find that funny. I know even sleeping here in our temporal life, when light starts to come in the bedroom window in the morning, my eyes immediately recognize there's light. Here they are sleeping as the blazing glory of God is being unveiled. That in itself was a supernatural reality. There's no way they would have been able to be sleeping. And all of this happens while Jesus is praying. And so I believe the answer to Jesus' prayer was an encouragement because not only are they getting a glimpse at the glory of God to which He would once again go, but Jesus Christ is being revealed for who He is in His glory after 
the resurrection comes, they, he will be returned to it. There certainly must be suffering before glory, beloved. Suffering comes before glory. Jesus was able to enjoy the glory of the transfiguration and the accomplishment that would come through his death so that he was resolute to continue down that road. And isn't this what the writer of Hebrews tells us about Jesus and why we are to fix our eyes on Jesus? Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, get this, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. The joy that was set before Him. What is that? The joy that was set before Him was the glory to come. The return to the glory to which He prayed for in John 17. The fellowship that would come once again with Him and the Father and with us in glory. The writer of Hebrews is saying to us, look to Jesus, follow Jesus. So Jesus is uplifted in His own heart, I believe, by the manifestation of His glory. But secondly, He's uplifted by the manifestation of Moses and Elijah. Verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. And they were appearing in glory, speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You notice they were speaking with Jesus. Luke tells us what they were talking about on the wall moment for Peter, James, and John. Here they are. The glory of Jesus Christ is being manifested and they're having a conversation with Jesus and Luke tells us what they're talking about. They're talking about Him and His departure. Hey Jesus, we just came here to chat about what's to come. We're so excited about this. Certainly death is coming. Certainly suffering's coming. Yes, that's all part of it. We all know that. But boy, are we excited about the ascension. We're excited about the return to glory. The Greek word for departing here is the word exodus. Exodus. The word exodus literally means deliverance or, or redemption. In other words, they're talking to Jesus about the deliverance. They're talking to Jesus about the redemption that He is about to bring about through the cross, and that through the cross is His return to glory. We wanted to come talk to you about the most important thing that's going to happen here, and that is your death and the, the salvation, certainly, that brings redemption, the exodus, which includes your glory. you notice that what is to come through the cross is never presented as a death that Christ endured. He didn't endure death. It was part of His exodus. 
It was a deliverance that he accomplished. It wasn't something that he simply just suffered. It was something that he achieved. He achieved our deliverance through his exodus. Remember what happened when they mentioned the cross to the disciples? That just brings panic to their minds. No way are you going to die that way. For them, the cross meant defeat. For them, the cross meant it was over. But for Christ and for Elijah and for Moses, for all of the heavenly realms, it means that Christ accomplishes the exodus. Not just His own, but for those who would believe. This is why we preach the resurrection. Because Jesus Christ didn't only accomplish His exodus, He accomplished ours. And so Moses and Elijah come to talk with Jesus about it and they didn't have name tags. And Peter and James and John have never met these men. They died hundreds of years before these guys were ever born. And yet here they are on the mountain with Jesus and they know exactly who they are. You say, how does that happen? I don't know. God. Nothing's impossible with God. Am I going to know them in heaven? Yeah. How will I know them? God. They came to talk with Jesus about His accomplishment. That would have strengthened Jesus for the task. They talked about the redemption He was to accomplish in Jerusalem. And his return to his former glory. Beloved, there was a heavenly anticipation for this moment. There was a dread in the disciples' heart. And yet in heaven, there is a heavenly anticipation. Why? Because heaven never dreaded that day. Heaven longed for it. So he would be strengthened by the unveiling of his glory. He would be strengthened by the upcoming exodus. He would be strengthened Thirdly, by the voice of the Father. Notice verse 35. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was alone. Or sorry, verse 35. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You say, wait a minute. You skip verses 32 through 34. We won't next week. This is my son. My chosen one. Listen to him. At every point of his earthly stay, Jesus had the favor of the Father resting on him. There wasn't a point in life of Jesus Christ where the Father's loving uh, approval of Jesus Christ didn't rest on him. And yet, at certain points, he receives astounding validations from the Father's pleasure. The Father spoke at His baptism. The Father's pleasure would be felt in an earthquake at His death. And it comes here at His transfiguration as the cross rises on the horizon before Him. And He takes on the price of redemption. The disciples may have protested the cross. None of that mattered to Jesus. Why? Because He is the beloved Son of God. 
This is my son. Jesus, like Isaac to Abraham, when the father said, let's go to the place of death, Jesus says, I'll go. Jesus prayed and the father answered. What was the father's answer? Continue the work. Continue the work. Ascension is coming. The glory that you had before is returning. Beloved, I hope we can understand that for every burden there is a necessary strength to continue in it. For every struggle of life there is the grace of God, the mercy of God, the approval of God because God has ordained it. As one author said, for every cross there is the needful grace. So the glory, the heavenly visitors, And the Father's good pleasure encouraged Jesus to bring deliverance through the cross. We sit here today because it has been accomplished. And just like them that day, as they're looking to the cross, we look back to the cross and none of us are the same because of it. None of us. Who is Jesus? God says he's my son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Why? Because He's God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. Well, we're like Peter and James and John. We're in a stupor wondering what's taking place. We need encouragement as well. Jesus brings that through this next week. We'll see that when we cover it then. But I hope you're here this morning. You understand that Jesus is God. He's not just some mystical figure that came up on the screen some 2,000 years ago and began to walk and everybody talks nice words about. No, he's God in the flesh. The blinding, blazing glory of a holy God. And his message to us is, if you don't believe in me, you will spend eternity in hell. Believe upon me and you will live. And if you believe upon me, your life will be totally different because you'll desire to live according to the plan of God just as I live. If you have questions about that this morning, you can see myself, you can see one of the other elders, you can see a deacon, you can tackle somebody, so make a scene in the building and we'll know that you just want to hear about Jesus. And we'll come to you. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You. Thank You for Your glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You are truth. All the world knows is foolishness and lies, but You are truth. Help us to live according to that. Know it. In our heart, believe it. Not just with words, but in reality, our lives be different and changed by it. Thank you for the glory of your Son. Thank you for revealing who he is to us. Giving us faith to believe and then strengthening our faith in it. 
We want to love you, not just in words, but in deeds. So help us do that by submitting to the Spirit. And may I walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And you receive all the glory for it all, knowing that we don't deserve any of it. We didn't deserve to be saved, and we certainly don't deserve any prizes for doing what is right. We'll praise you for all eternity, just like the angels in heaven. Moses and Elijah and all who have gone before us into glory will praise you forever and ever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.